Glorious and wonderful, truly glorious to praise the truths of His redeeming grace. Let's turn in our Bibles now to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 as we continue our exposition of the book of Isaiah and also as we continue to look now at the divine titles that are given to our great messianic redeemer. We read in Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this let's pray father once again we ask of you to come to pity us as dear children we are hungry, O oh God, for Your Word. And if we do not hunger, if we do not thirst, would You open our eyes. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Show us our great need and our deep lack for spiritual sustenance, for nourishment. And Lord, today we pray that You would comfort us by reminding us of the mighty reality that our Savior, our Redeemer, our King is also here called Eternal Father. Help us, Lord, to grow in our understanding of His person and work so that we might be enriched and in being enriched that we may be satisfied in pleasing and in glorifying you above all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, if you've been paying attention to this exposition, you know that if you looked even on the website and you look back at the titles of my sermons uh, with this passage, I've entitled it something like, From Darkness to Light. Why? Because that's the way the chapter opens up, remember? We come out of the calamity of chapter 8, the prophesied destruction, the darkness of the spiritual condition of Judah at this time, and yet we're greeted with a marvelous gospel promise in chapter 9, verse 1, that the Gentiles who are in Galilee, that they will see a great light, right? That where there is gloom, there will be Joy, He will make it glorious. And the people who walk in darkness, verse 2, will see a great light. And so God means to take the world that is presently in the lap of darkness to bring them into His glorious light. And how He's, he's going to do that, of course, is as the Gospels declare, as Matthew points out, this prophecy is speaking about the Messiah, and therefore, from darkness to light is going to be the work of the glorious King of heaven, who is Jesus Christ. And as we think about the glory of the King, we have focused all of our attention, yea, all of our force <laughs> into verse 6. And we have slowed down, refusing to be rushed, at least I'm not rushed, but refusing to rush through these monumental titles that have been unleashed upon the Messiah. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and now Eternal Father, Lord willing next week, Prince of Peace. And so we turn to this title of Eternal Father with reference 
to the Messiah. Now, admittedly, because we are self-conscious Trinitarians, when we hear the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, being called Eternal Father, immediately we think, what gives? Because I thought there's the Father, and then there's the Son, and never the two shall be confused, right? Uh, doesn't the council of Nicaea determine that Jesus is distinct from the Father? And the Nicaean Creed says you cannot confuse the persons, right? Sharing the substance but not confounding the persons. Isn't this confounding the persons of the Godhead here? No, it's not. But it's important for us at least to understand how to avoid things like modalism, Unitarianism, Jesus-onlyism, these heretical uh, doctrines that have plagued the church going all the way back to the first, second, and third centuries of the church with Neotis, Praxius, and later Sibelius, who were all maintained some form of modalism, which is to say there is one person, but Father, Son, and Spirit are just modes or manifestations of one. Not one being, but one person. And so, how do we avoid all of that? Well, I don't know that we're going to have the time to treat that historical situation here. I don't think we can. But there is first the ontological consideration, precisely how the Father and the Son should be related in terms of their being, their subsistence, meaning how they exist in relation to one another and especially in the distinction of their persons within their oneness, which is mind-blowing. And so if we go through this, and if your mind is sort of blown, welcome to the party. Because Trinitarian theology is formulaic, meaning we can understand it. There are three persons, one essence in God. There is one God eternally existing as three distinct persons with three distinct co-eternal centers of consciousness, three distinct personhood, but yet they are one God. And that is the limits of human language. We can't go any further than that without venturing into areas that we just don't know what we're talking about. I mean, I was reading last night a journal entry. I just stumbled across this journal entry by Lane Tipton on the doctrine of perichoresis, which is the doctrine of how the virtues and the persons and the love and, and, and the work of the members interpenetrate each other so that they share in each other while they are distinct from each other. I thought it was humorous that I fell across that, just stumbled across that article, and uh, I sent Lane Tipton a text message, a picture. I said, look what I found in my logos. I found you. Anyway, uh, that's just an inside thing. But, uh, but it, it's important for us to understand that these distinctions need to be made. And as far as Isaiah goes, there are three degrees that we need to understand what we can call the fatherhood of Jesus, which sounds almost uh, heretical, but it's not if you just listen to what I'm going to hopefully try to develop here. There are different degrees here. Number one, how the Son reveals the Father and how they share in oneness with one another. And lastly, how at the messianic level, Jesus can be identified as a Father. So number one, let's deal with Jesus and the Father being one because this is so important for our hermeneutics our entire approach to Scripture on doctrinal issues like this. It's very important for us to go to the clarity of Scripture before we go to the ambiguity of Scripture, the places that are difficult. You go to the easier passages to unlock the harder passages. But one thing is for certain when you look at the biblical text of Scripture. This verse is not telling us, as you know, that Jesus is the Father. Jesus is not the Father capital F, okay? That is not what it is saying here, leading us to embrace any sort or any form of modalism or any other 
Trinitarian heresy or doctrine that is heretical in light of the Trinity. This would make innumerable passages in the Bible completely hopeless, completely redundant, totally contradictory, and self-refuting in their nature. For example, when Jesus uh, uh, is being baptized and the Father speaks out of heaven, He says, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. If you arrive at modalism, that statement itself is a hopelessly unintelligible statement because that would be the son speaking out of heaven identifying himself as the father and speaking to himself on earth Uh, that that doesn't work and then to make matters even more complicated you would have the person of the son flying through the sky as the spirit it doesn't work and so only trinitarian theology can maintain the tension that the father is in heaven speaking out of heaven the spirit is descending and i'm thinking of passages like matthew chapter 4 uh, uh, Luke chapter, th- uh, Luke, uh, Matthew 3, Luke chapter 3, uh, verse 22, for example, in Luke, where the Father is speaking out of heaven, affirming His Son at His baptism. But at the ontological level, we also have to guard against confusing the persons of the Godhead by supposing that the Father shares in the person of the Son, and the person of the Son shares in the person of the Father and the Spirit, and so back and forth, so much so that we lose sight of the distinction of the persons. The word perichoresis, write it down, maybe look it up. Perichoresis is a word that simply emphasizes the inner penetration, as I said, of the persons. But this has to do with virtue, with their love, with their communion, with their relating to one another in such intimate communion that, as it were, they, 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 they share in one another in this sort of reciprocal, unbreakable, indissoluble fashion. Remarkable, remarkable. But at the same time, as much as perichoresis is good and orthodox, it's important to note with the great creeds and the great confessions of the Christian church That each member of the Godhead, though being fully God in themselves, deriving no Godhood from themselves, meaning Jesus doesn't get a little bit of His Godhood from the Father, and the Father doesn't get a little bit of His Godhood from the Son. No. The divine essence is not derived. It just is. This is what is being talked about in terms of their co-substantial relationship their natures coexisting right next to each other their persons sharing that same nature and so even though this is incomprehensible to our minds our minds tend to run out how three can be one and how one can be three at the same time that it's incomprehensible it is not unintelligible It's necessarily biblical and theologically indispensable. You understand that the doctrine of the Trinity, brothers and sisters, lies very lightly on the church today. If you were to be teleported back to the early centuries of the Christian church, let's say you were there at the Council of Nicaea, there you would find bishops, scholars, pastors that would go to the Council of Nicaea to participate in a debate that transpired between two scholars arian or arius who was a heretic denied that jesus was god incarnate and athanasius who believed that jesus was uncreated and was co-equal with the father you would find there scholars teachers pastors who were maimed persecuted beaten marred some of them having missing limbs gouged out eyeballs why because they're being persecuted for believing in the doctrine of the Trinity. It doesn't cost us anything today. It costs them everything to uphold orthodoxy. And so it's very important that we as modern Christians do not lose our historical footing, that we stand upon the shoulders of giants and that those giants stood on the bedrock of Trinitarian doctrine and were willing to die for it. It was that important. It was that essential. It was like R.C. Sproul when he went into that meeting way back when uh, evangelicals and Catholics came together for an ecumenical you know, 
uh, uh, conference and, 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 and documents. R.C. Sproul is said by MacArthur anyway to have crawled on top of a desk and got in the face of one of his friends and said, don't mess with this doctrine. Basically, I'm, now I'm paraphrasing, you know. I'm sure Sproul sounded a little bit more eloquent than that. But he got on the table, he got on the desk and said, this is about whether you go to heaven or hell. Don't play footsies with Catholics. We are not Catholic for a reason. We're, not, we're Protestants for a reason. Don't try to undo the Reformation. The same way here, guys. We are Nicene for a reason. We are Athanasian. I, didn't, I don't know if you knew today you'd walk in here and somebody tell you, you're Athanasian. You're Nicene. That's right. We believe in these great creeds of the Christian church because those people, and if you read the church fathers, I don't have time to develop this, but if you read the church fathers, if you read the book by Lightfoot, for example, and the Apostolic Fathers, these men thought deeper on the doctrine of the Trinity than anything you have ever seen in your life. They went into every contour, every possible connection, every dynamic, every sort of dimension, every exegetical uh, observation. These men were saturated in Trinitarian thought. That's why we're Trinitarians today. And it boiled down, you know, we live in a very anti-doctrinal age, right? I mean, very, very. That controversy, and you've heard me say this before, it came down to one letter in the Greek alphabet, iota. It was either homoousius, homoousius, or homu, homoi, homoi, and homoousius. Okay, whatever. You don't need to know Greek. But just know, one letter made a difference between is Jesus like the Father or is Jesus of the same essence of the Father? That's it. That's life and death. That's heaven and hell. And in our postmodern world, that seems completely archaic, old-fashioned, puritanical, narrow-minded, bigoted, exclusivistic, and it's completely intolerable. Tolerable. But we don't tolerate the thinking of the world on this. We follow the mind of Christ. And just like Paul says in Galatians, you mess with one little article on the doctrine of justification and you find yourself under an anathema of God. Oh, what's the difference? We both believe in Jesus. We both believe in the covenant. We both believe that he justifies. Yeah, but if you add just one little thing where you kind of maintain your status before God, you work for your righteousness before God, that little qualification that you're trying to sneak into the back door lands you square underneath the curse of God. Doctrine matters and that's why in our church lord willing we will never stray away from the centrality of the word of god and the exposition of scripture but jesus is not just one with the father and the ontological issues there but also jesus reveals the father turn with me in your bibles if you would to understand how is it that the messiah is being called eternal father i am contending that at least one of the ways in which we can wrap our brain around that is that He reveals the Father to us. Okay. <laughs> and that's amazing. It's not just what Jesus does, but it's also who Jesus is. In other words, it's not just that Jesus at some point, maybe in His incarnation, during His ministry, revealed the Father to man, but in His very person, in His very nature, is Himself, listen now, an eternal, exact representation of the Father. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He, i.e. the Son, is the radiance of his, i.e. the Father, His glory, and the exact representation of His, i.e. the Father's nature, 
and he upholds all things by the word of his, i.e. the Son, his power. Keep your eye on the ball there, toggling back and forth, right? Because that's important. You miss the pronouns there, you're doomed, right? Your exegesis has to be spot on when you deal with this text right here because he toggles back and forth like that. When he made purification for sins, notice that. So we go from in Jesus you see the exact representation of the Father in incarnate form. And then just as you're beginning to experience some sort of univocal identity of the persons, then he says, after he made purification for sins, then what happens? He sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So then he distinguishes them again. Amazing. Amazing. This is important because as we think of how it is that Jesus is conceived of in terms of fatherhood, we could say that it is because he himself is the eternal representation of the father, that he could be said to be a father to us and we'll develop that more they are bound together you see they're not just one in essence and nature but they are also bound together in their work they are one in their work of creation and of redemption as you know Um, that's what it is remarkably As we think about God the Father, this is interesting for you to know. The designation for God as Father is not found in the Old Testament very much. Just a couple times. Just a couple times. God is called the Father in the Old Testament. That's interesting, isn't it? But there's one place where He is called the Father, and the emphasis there is on His work of redemption. Of redemption. Look at Isaiah 63, verse 16, or I could just read it to you. Isaiah 63, verse 16. For you are our Father. This is a profound verse. Why? Notice the tension. Though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not recognize us, most Christians lost at that point. What is he talking about? Though Abraham does not know us, though Israel does not recognize, that, recognize us, their Israel is referring to Jacob, right? Abraham's son. So he is, he is an heir. He is one of the patriarchs. Abraham, Jacob, or here called Israel. Though they don't know us, though they don't recognize us, meaning the people of God have gotten to such a position where they no longer have any identification to the privileges of the, pat- of the patriarchs. They don't even resemble them anymore. They seem to have no connection to them anymore. They seem to have forfeited their birthright. They need what? They need grace. That's what they need. They see themselves as severed from the promises from the Father's. And it says, but you, O Lord, are a Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. For the Messiah, therefore, to be eternal Father has to do with the fact that He Himself uniquely is qualified, fit, capable of truly revealing the Father and the fatherhood of God to us. Now, I want you to turn to the Gospel of John. And as you turn to John chapter 14, I'm going to read to you out of John 1 because this is reinforced by the fact that Jesus shares intimately, functionally. He is in perfect unity. He shares in identity with the Father. There's a functional identity with the Father that in Him, that is in the Son, we may see the fullness of the expression of the Father and experience the very fatherly love of God through Him, Jesus, and by Him. Let me set this up here for a second. You're a disciple, and you know the Word. You know what Jesus has taught. John chapter 1, verse 18. You stay in John 14. You know this verse. No one has seen God at any time. We know that verse. You can finish the verse. Well, maybe you can finish the verse. (laughs) 
The only begotten God, monogenes theos. If you have a uh, King James, King Jimmy will fail you there because it will say monogenes huios, meaning son, only begotten son, which I think better manuscripts support the reading, harder reading, only begotten God. Credible designation for the deity of Christ. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. So there's the tension. No one has seen God. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. You know this verse. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Right? We quote that in evangelism. Can you quote the rest of the passage? (laughs) What's in that passage? If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. For from now on, you know him and have seen him. Huh? What? What I mean, we've seen the Father. And so you, embodied by by, uh, Philip here, you would have done what Philip did. Trust me, you would have done. She's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Jesus, <laughs> watch your mouth there. Getting a little out of hand here. I mean, we've seen the Father. That's a tremendous claim. Then again, Jesus is known for making claims for which they want to stone him to death. So, the disciples are on a wild ride here. What do you mean we've seen him? And so right away, Philip said, Lord, Show us the Father and it is enough. So it's like, I don't want to question you, but if you're going to say we can see the Father, would you please kindly show us the Father so that we know like we're not going insane here, right? And what does Jesus say? Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. And this is where modalism twists the meaning here. It'll explain itself. How can you then say, show us the Father? (laughs) Isn't that great? Uh, You think my statement was crazy? Your statement's the one that's wrong. It is wrong to ask, show us the Father, because if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You have the sufficient evidence that you asked for. Do you not believe that I am in the Father? Oh, here we go. So going away from any sort of Unitarian ideas that Jesus is the Father, now we are being told that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So he means something else. He means the Trinity. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. And so the works that Jesus did were the ultimate authentication that he was one with his Father, and that the Father was working and actively uh, manifesting his glory through the Son to man. Only the Son, therefore, who enjoys a perfect ontological unity with the Father and the Spirit can properly possess a functional unity and a functional identity with the Father even as He does with the Spirit. Especially if you take 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, where it says, Now the Lord is the Spirit. Seems to suggest there that Jesus is being called the Spirit but not in an ontological way, not in terms of his essence, but his function, what he does. In other words, he acts in place of the Spirit. That's what Jesus does upon his resurrection and his resurrection work. In the same way, therefore, he can say, I and the Father are one. John 10, verse 30 His perfect triune unity with the Father makes Jesus the exact glory of the Father's heart and nature toward us. 
It's as simple as this, guys. Bring it down to Sunday school level. You want to know the Father's heart? You want to know what the Father is like? Just look at Jesus. That's it. You got all your answers right there in His work and what He does. In His work, He doesn't merely reveal the Father. However, He brings us to the Father. And He brings the Father to us. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. He leaves us with the Father to abide in Him as much as He, the Son, and the Father abide in us. Amazing. Such incomprehensible divine condescension, brethren. Oh, that God would come down and dwell with us in this way. But Jesus is unmistakable. He is unflinching. He is fearless and unapologetic about the fact that through Him we are also one with His Father to know His love even as Jesus has known the love of the Father, that we should know that love and that we should be known by the Father in the same communion bond, the same everlasting filial fellowship without end. First, see the Son bound to the love of the Father. John 15, verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love then that quality of love relation between Father and Son is then communicated to us. Don't lose me here. John 16, 25. These things I spoke in you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I'll no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. The resurrection will make everything clear. Clear. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will request the Father on your behalf. Watch this now. For the Father himself loves you. That's a sermon right there. And it is a tragedy that I don't stop for an hour to talk about that. The Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father, the very thing that His adversaries did not believe. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. You see how modalism doesn't work? He doesn't say here, I am leaving the world again and going to myself. He says, I'm going to the Father. But... In his indispensable commentary, I wanted to point this out, Herman Ritterboss, in his Gospel of John, says that this is the Father expressing the desire for people to love Him in spirit and in truth. And this is what he says. He says, love for Jesus restores direct access to God. In that love, the Father recognizes His own. It is the one great love by which God loved the world in His Son, and which then returns to Him in those who, in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Son, then turn to Him as their Father. In other words, when Jesus orients our lives back to God, He is turning us to a Father. He is taking us to the Father. And a relationship with the Father, a relationship that is most pure, most holy, so many dysfunctional father-child relationships, horror stories, even in this church or outside of this church that we have heard or that we can tell. But the fellowship that we have with the Father is holy, pure, Healthy, functional, not dysfunctional. Sacred, full of filial love. A communion bond of fellowship, brothers and sisters, that cannot be broken. In a word, 
It is a covenantal love in a covenantal kingdom. But there is a deeper level in terms of Isaiah's meaning. That was mainly theological, making sure we understand Trinitarian contours, the function of the Son to reveal the Father to us. But how does Isaiah mean this? He will be everlasting Father. Many commentators have opted for, I think, what is the wrong interpretation, that He is the Father of eternity, so that the fatherhood of the Messiah here really has to do with His uh, something like his governing of time. I don't think Isaiah is talking about governing time. I think he's a father to us. We receive, we are the recipients of his fatherhood, uh, not time. Okay? And so I don't agree with that. And I understand, the, I understand the caution and the concern there, again, to try to distinguish. Well, he can't be called the father, right? But you must understand E.J. Young in his commentary and many others, uh, Mater and Oswald, they all point out that in the ancient Near Eastern world and in the world of Isaiah and in Isaiah's time, a king was always to be the father of the nation. And if there's one thing the ancient world understood, and we should even understand based on reading Isaiah, kings come and go. What do we read? Chronicles, Kings, Samuel, right? And this king, did, Manasseh, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he died, right? Over and over, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. There is no lamentation for this king because he is the eternal king. He never ceases to be the father of his people in his kingdom. Isn't that glorious? It's like a father and the citizens of the kingdom are like little children scurrying about in his kingdom. <laughs> and he takes care of us the way we do, you know, when we're fellowshipping and the kids are, you know, going where they're not supposed to go and we're like, no, no, back, 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 right? That's what Jesus does to us. He fathers us and his fatherhood never ends. He is the father king of his people. That's who he is. That's what he does. He is the father par excellence of his people. He is the perfect king in a perfect kingdom who presides over a very imperfect people. Most commentators stress the eternality of the fatherhood of the Messiah as precisely what distinguishes Jesus and his royal supremacy over all other kings. So therefore, unlike the transient nature of past kings, kings of other nations. Jesus' kingship, like his kingdom, cannot be shaken. It will have no end. As Isaiah himself says here, there will be no end to the increase of his government. There will be no procession, no lamentation, no funeral. He is the eternal father king of his people. As the eternal Father, therefore, He cannot fail, brothers and sisters, as we move into a more devotional observation here. He cannot fail to govern us, to protect us, to provide, and to guide us. This grounds the fatherhood of Jesus in the eschatological. He will always be with us as well as in the redemptive. At the redemptive Level Jesus' fatherhood is seen from his saving solidarity with his people. Here, turn with me, Isaiah, uh, Hebrews chapter 2. Phenomenal thing happens here in Hebrews chapter 2 because what is being done here is that Isaiah is speaking in prophetic symbolism, as he does elsewhere, where Isaiah himself, in a sense, embodies the Messiah's own mission when he says, Okay, you're in Hebrews chapter 2. But I'm going to read to you what he says in Isaiah 8, verse 18, which we have already studied. Remember there, Isaiah says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. 
And what's remarkable about that is that from the perspective of the fatherhood of Jesus, this is a metaphor that belongs to other metaphors. So that finally, as you're looking at Hebrews chapter 2, the total picture is now given where Hebrews represents a mixture of the metaphors to convey the total messianic picture. Look at verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, or from one, as the literal Greek says. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them, what? Brethren. Saying, I will proclaim the name, your name to my brethren. See that? So in this metaphor, we are Messiah's what? His brothers. We are His brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, now citing Isaiah 8. I will put my trust in Him, and behold, I, that's Jesus talking, and the children whom God has given me. So there is Jesus with His kids, His people, standing in perfect redemptive covenantal solidarity with his brethren and his children because in reality they are one in the same. He ties together what all of the different aspects of Old Testament revelation were trying to emphasize. Watch this. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Why do I read on? Because The children that are entrusted to Jesus are also thus His brethren. The brethren and the the children for whom He died and for whom He triumphed over the devil and death. Finally, this profound, indeed, mysterious, deep doctrine of the fatherhood of the Messiah also shows the, the perfect fatherhood of Jesus because of His filial love and His providential care for His children. Do you feel, understand, maybe feeling is, okay, maybe it's not the best word, you know what I mean, because we might think this is all for emotional or something like that, but you know what I mean. Are you impacted by the fatherhood of Jesus in your life His love, His providential care over His children. He not only lays down His life for us, He not only calls us, justifies us, and inevitably He will glorify us. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 29. He also sustains us and He cares for us in the meanwhile, in the interim. When we see this, it becomes apparent that Jesus' fatherhood cannot and should not be conceived of apart from its Trinitarian reality. That is to say, brothers and sisters, that in Jesus' care for His kids, the citizens of the kingdom, it is the care of the whole God for the people of God. Precisely what Jesus Himself taught. And so turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Because in teaching this, He reveals the Father's heart. And He shows us that the heart of a Father is for us, and it hits us where it matters every day. Every day. Beginning in verse 25, you know this passage of Scripture, but brothers and sisters, oh... How relevant this is to us right now. Allow this passage now to ground us. To ground us from whatever it is that is shaking us presently. For this reason I say to you, don't be worried about your life. Anxiety on the rise, coronavirus on the rise, plagues on the rise, locusts the sides of entire states in Africa, sweeping, devouring, you know, uh, farms and seconds, you know, on the rise, wars and rumors of wars on the rise, North Korea, it was just a big sham, Trump never had control in the first place, all on the rise, here comes Bernie Sanders, (laughs) good old Bernie, you know. 
Here comes socialism on the rise. Here comes postmodernism on the rise. Here comes the LGBTQ on the rise. Here comes all these things on the rise. Here come your bills on the rise. Here come your health on the rise or on the downfall. And Jesus has the audacity to tell us, do not worry about your life. Wow. As to what are you going to eat? You know what we have today? Restaurants everywhere. You look outside, it's like, Texas, what are you up to? Putting up another restaurant, of course. What else would we do with all this land? What are you going to drink? Don't worry about your body. What you will put on it. How much time does it take for you to shop? Looking to close, 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 close. Click, 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 click. How much time do we spend on things that mean absolutely nothing in the grand scheme of things? I'm, I'm grateful that you all dress yourselves well. Don't get me wrong. Don't come in here looking like a, like a bum. I'm just, I'm with you guys. I'm with you guys. This world, next thing you know, you're tricked. You're duped. It's got you right where he wants you. It's just spending oodles and oodles and oodles and oodles of the most precious time that you will never get back on the most trivial things that matter nothing in the grand scheme of things. It's like Deion Sanders. He wins the Super Bowl. I saw a commentary where he says, I ran the Super Bowl. I, I won the Super Bowl. I ran down the field. I looked up and I'm like, is that it? I thought that was so profound. It's like since I was a kid, right, in Little League or whatever, I'm working my entire life. I'm striving injuries, you know, training nonstop, you know, for this moment right here. And I get to it and I get a sense, I get a feeling of wasn't all that I thought it was going to be. It just left me kind of dissatisfied to be truth, truthful about it. This world is just not designed to satisfy us, beloved. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his or her life? cannot it does nothing to worry i am not good at this i am confessing before you that i need this i don't like to worry i found out one thing about becoming a father uh number one i'm not good at it no no and i mean that i worry about my daughter it's like paranoia is she gonna hurt her is she okay you know it's like man just relax right i don't know how trish puts up with me but anyway i'm very paranoid about her and then thinking about her future and growing up in this crazy society i'm just paranoid as i think about her and and, and i have to i need this here her her life is in his hands and i have to trust in that i have to trust in that i say to you not even solomon in all of his glory was clothed like one of these but if god so clothed the grass of the field which is alive talking about the lilies of the field sorry i skipped that part he says, but is alive, but today and tomorrow is then thrown into the furnace. Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. Now understand in the New Testament theology what happens to the word Ethnes there, Gentile, okay, or or or, or uh, the 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 goe of you know the, the the nations of the Old Testament. The word Gentile becomes code for unbelievers. That's what happens by the time you reach the apostolic teaching of this. It's no longer Jew Gentile. You know that's not what he means. Not 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 unless he specifies that. But it's used of the Gentiles who do not know God. That's not talking just about non-Jewish people. Okay, so. It, it turns into that. 
But the unbeliever, we could say, eagerly seek all of these things. They worry themselves about all this stuff. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. This is where the Puritans would say, my dear friend, my dear neighbor, my dear acquaintance, close with Christ first. Stop worrying about everything else in your life. Everything else around. Close with Him. Seek His kingdom first. All these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Oh, mystery of mysteries, brothers and sisters, that the child to be born to us would also be a father. He reveals the Father. He is one with the Father and will be a Father King to His people in a government that will have no end, in a kingdom that will not be shaken, in the bond of communion that can never be severed. His care will be forever known. But the beauty of this is that His eternal fatherhood, as great, high, unfathomable, and eternal as it is, extends to us now in the most minute matters in our lives. In a world where plagues, earthquakes, turmoil, wars, rumors of wars, social deterioration, constant decay of health, and the weariness of our lives, it is essential for us to detect the love of Jesus for His children. Is it any surprise that one of Jesus' favorite metaphors for the disciples is paidon? Technia, child, children. Remember the disciples? There they are after the resurrection. It's all over. Hope is over. He didn't rise. We don't know what happened. Where did they go? Fishing. Peter leads them. (laughs) Right? They just go back to what they know. And then he appears on the seashore. You remember what he called them? Children. He said, children. You guys caught any fish tonight? (laughs) And as one expositor said, that would have been the most offensive thing that a professional fisherman could be told after a night of exhausting fishing that yielded no fish from somebody on the seashore to call you a child and ask you if you've caught fish. (laughs) But Jesus did that to accent something. Apart from your Father, you can do nothing. And so prioritize your life around His love, His care, and His sovereignty over your life, or you'll be frustrated. Father, help us, therefore, Lord, to open our eyes to see Your goodness in every moment, in every circumstance, in every detail of our lives. We are no different than the ancients. We want food. We want clothing. We worry about life. We worry ourselves about these transient things. And we are no different in our need to trust and to resign ourselves to Your sovereign providential care. Help us, O God. We confess. We don't need for You to tell us. We confess. We are of little faith. Increase our faith, O God. For your namesake. Amen.